Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined today by Bill Janovitz, founding member of the band Buffalo Tom and author of this excellent biography of Leon Russell. We may know Leon best from his star turn at George's concert for Bangladesh, but Bill's book reveals a remarkable life full of ups and downs, twists and turns, and of course, the amazing musicianship that impressed George and so many others. Bill Janovitz, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Good, thanks for having me, Joe. We are here to talk about your book about Leon Russell. Uh, really, as I was just saying to you before we start recording, a figure that I didn't know that much about and I learned so much from the book. And it's another example of someone around the Beatles that has this fascinating life. A good old-fashioned first question. Tell us a little bit about the history of this project. What gave you the the idea and the impetus to tell Leon's story? I don't do this full-time. Um, I, I sort of pick and choose my projects Um I can't say that I'm I'm getting deluged with project. In fact, my last book came out in 13 about the Rolling Stones. And I had done one previously about five years before that on the Rolling Stones for 33 and a third. The series there, I did one on Exile on Main Street. And from that begat this other Stones book in 2013 on their 50th anniversary. That's called Rocks Off. In fact, the Rocks Off book, it's interesting. That, that was presented to me by a, an agent over there in the UK who had this idea given their the Stones' 50th anniversary at the time, to do a book sort of based on the on the same format that Ian McDonald did for uh, Revolution in the Head. It was basically taking songs to weave, weave together their history. Any, anyway, I, that book did pretty well, and uh, from that I got a new agent here, and we started casting around for ideas uh, of what to do next. And somewhere in the process, you know, I said, how about a book on on Mad Dogs and Englishmen, a tour with Joe Cocker and and, and Leon Russell and, and, you know, sort of a whole crew of amazing musicians. And he said, well, it, it's a great idea, but it's a bit too narrow maybe for publishers to, to get, traction, get traction with. So I think a couple more years even went by after that. And he said, uh, an email to me, he said, you passed on Leon Russell, right? And I said, I did not pass on Leon Russell. Uh, so the estate for Leon Russell, uh, being his widow and some some representatives, were looking for somebody to to, to write a book about Leon. I, I mean, as soon as I saw the name Leon Russell, I, I I had the whole arc of the of the book in 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 my mind. Like I had the whole outline. I knew the basic contours of Leon's story, but I didn't know a, a ton about Leon at all. Uh, I mean, I knew some of the basics. So yeah, I mean, one thing led to another. I wrote a letter to to Jan Bridges, his widow, and I I asked to be the one to get to write this book. And it's not a work for hire at all. I mean, part of the agreement was that I was just going to write my book and they showed me great trust in doing so. In fact, I just sent Jan the copy this few days ago. So um, to my knowledge, she hasn't even read it yet. <laughs> you mentioned your Stones books there. Was it a different process writing about Leon? The Stones obviously are incredibly renowned, globally famous act. Leon, although well-known in, in kind of rock and roll circles, was it a different kind of approach to take to tell his story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both of my books on the Stones were heavy on my point of view and, and analysis of the music. I mean, the uh, the story, the biography, the history of the Stones is so well told already in other sources. So a lot of my book, a lot of my those previous books were relying on on previous previously written books plus some interviews, uh but this was a whole different thing. I mean, this is like there was no real biography uh, of Leon Russell. 
there was scant material. Really, there's just some some old uh, online and and old print material, uh, interviews and old articles. But he was he was sort of notoriously press resistant, uh, publicity resistant, shooting himself in the foot uh, in many cases. So I did 140 interviews for this book, something like that. So they, these were all people that either knew him directly very well, you know, sort of degrees on the spectrum there. I get to to talk about and analyze the music as a musician. I think that's sort of my strength in, in coming to these books, but it really was more of a gigantic research and interview project. So you say in the book that Leon wasn't basically close to his parents. Tell us a little bit about his childhood and what kind of childhood did, did Leon have? His his dad abandoned the family uh, when Leon was just entering uh, adolescence. Um, his father was a bit of a bully. Leon was injured during birth. Uh, a lot of people mistook that mistook that for polio, but it was really kind of cerebral palsy due to a birth injury. So he had sort of partial paralysis on his right side, which resulted in a limp and a weak right hand. And he was already a left-handed person. Um, but his mom was a piano player, and his dad actually played piano as well. When they were together, they would kind of play together as a family. Uh, but his dad, uh, you know, was I think was embarrassed by Leon's. Uh, he was more of a man's man, a jockey kind of guy, um, and he was a bit of a militantish guy, apparently, according to a few people. I, I didn't really get to know much about his dad, but he did leave the family. So it was Leon and his mom, and his and Leon's older brother. He only had one one sibling, and his older brother I think was about six years older than him. So Leon kind of grew up with his mom, um, but later he so you know he moved on from. The family. I think he had problems with his mom. She was a bit of a racist, I think. And Leon uh, famously had uh, black girlfriends and, and a wife uh, later on. So that was a big issue for him. I, I, you know, I, I think he just sort of moved on from his family uh, and, and formed sort of self-formed families and, and communities. Where did his inspiration to be a music maker come from? Yeah, I think like a lot of musicians, myself included, it, it was just the only thing that made them it was the thing that made the most sense like for me i think a lot of people get born and they want to they want to be sports stars or they 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 have some other natural talent something that innate or some some sort of fantasy for me i mean music just made total sense to me uh but this is not about me i, I think leon was the same way and maybe even to a more extreme well certainly to a more extreme example in all cases he was extremely shy he suffered from st- stage fright his whole life he was insecure, but he, he started learning how to play piano as a very young child, as a toddler. And his mom started teaching him. And then his talent was so great that she was f- trying to find the best piano teachers in any given region of Oklahoma. And uh, he was he was kind of a prodigy. I mean, he, he would have probably been a prodigy on the level of Van Cliburn or Glenn Gould. But his paralysis, partial paralysis on his right side gave him some limitations which he later um, overcompensated for in other ways or, or found devised ways of, of getting around uh, and became a really amazing pianist. He was, al- he was also always in a school band playing horn and marching band and all kinds of stuff. So he was always involved in music. So some listeners might not know that Leon played on maybe some of their favourite records, including working for Phil Spector. Uh, most famously, maybe he features on the Christmas album, how did Leon get involved with Phil Spector, first of all? At 18, he just went out to L.A. sort of with, a, you know, it's a sort of American story, you know, get on a Greyhound bus and try to scrape together a couple of bucks and, and, and make a living. And I mean, Tulsa at that time, the Tulsa he left 
was uh, right along Route 66, the great, you know, mythical American highway, it was sort of the crossroads of the Southwest and the West. So, and it was a dry town. So you had gotten a lot of experience playing all kinds of music from supper clubs, jazz, light jazz, to later at night playing hard, hard ass rock and roll. So he went out to LA to sort of do the same, get more gigs. He didn't really think he was going to break into the recording industry so much, but he he did. He made these connections. He really impressed people like James Burton, who was playing with Ricky Nelson and went on to play with Merle Haggard and Elvis Presley and, and everybody else, uh, one of the great guitar players. Glenn Campbell, Randy Newman, Delaney Bramlett, they were all sort of in this Palomino scene out in the valley, uh, San Fernando Valley. So through these networks, he got started to play on demos. And from demos, he his talent was too great. He really kind of mainly through Jack Nietzsche got in, involved with um, with Phil Spector. Jack Nietzsche saw him playing behind um, uh, Jackie DeShannon in a club. And, you know, it was kind of a small town of a small community of musicians. And, 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 and these are the people that sort of became the wreck became known as the wrecking crew. They were, they formed the wall of sound for Phil Spector and Leon is on virtually all of Phil Spector's big hits, except for some of the later ones. Like you'll often see him listed as a player on, on river deep mountain high, which he was not for, for Ike and Tina. He was sort of on his own by then doing other things, but he's on be my baby. He's on the do run run. He's on the Christmas album doing the great, going off at the end of Darlene Love's song. That's kind of where you really hear him. What was his relationship like with Spectre? Uh, I think it was uh, it was like a lot of people's, like sort of a detached, bemused kind of, uh, as, long as, you, as long as you don't hit me over the head or shoot at me, we're okay kind of thing. Uh, you'll see this in the Wrecking Crew documentary uh, that Denny Tedesco put together. Uh, Cher and, and a bunch of other people telling the story about Leon finally cracking Phil Spector infamously take after take after take for days. You, they would be doing the same song over and over and over again and playing very rudimentary parts. So it would drive these these great players kind of nuts after a while. Spector was was a bit unstable, as we know. And uh, uh, one time, Leon was just so worn down that a friend, uh, one of the other players, went next door and got a, some peach schnapps, I guess. And uh, they got a little bit uh, too, too drunk and... Um, Leon was up and doing this early version of his preacher act and just making everybody laugh because they had never heard Leon sort of come out of his shell at all. And then uh, Phil Spector comes in and says, Leon, get down off that piano or something like this and says, don't you know the meaning of respect? And Leon turns to him and goes, Philip, don't you know the meaning of fuck you? <laughs> and all the musicians just <laughs> fell about laughing. Excellent. Moving relatively swiftly forward, as we must do, as the 60s draw to a close... Leon becomes involved with Delaney and Bonnie, which is a name that a lot of Beatle kind of fans will be aware of because of the George Harrison and Eric Clapton connection. And they're just a group that kind of pop up in Beatles books at various different points. Tell us a little bit about the Delaney and Bonnie group, first of all, and how Leon got involved with them. Leon had been playing with Delaney. Um, you know, Delaney was on Shindig. Uh, he was part of the, the, the Shindog situation, you know. He had come out from Mississippi. I mean, all these people came to L.A. There was hardly anybody from that area. You know, you know like the Beach Boys and Jen and Dean and those guys were. But for the most part, these are people like from Earl, like Earl Palmer coming out from New Orleans. And I mean, just some of the greats from around the country uh, coalescing there because they could make tons of dough mm. uh, being recording session musicians in the union. So uh, Leon got to know Delaney very well there, and they were always close friends and uh, partners. And, and Leon had tried to produce records on Delaney before in, 
including uh, some some Delaney and Bonnie stuff because Bonnie came out. She she had the already been a stand-in Iket for Ike and Tina as the, the one of the only white Iquettes for a, a short stint while one of them was sick and they needed a replacement. So she had this uh, and still does this incredible voice. And the two of them together were like an unbelievable singing duo, like so soulful. Uh, but they were both kind of Delaney was a bit of a tyrant as well, apparently, and, and also uh, exacerbated by bad substance abuse. But Leon helped put this band together um, with some Okies like Jimmy Carstein on drums and eventually Jim Keltner on drums. You've got Carl Radel out of Tulsa. These are all guys from Leon's you know, high school days, essentially. Bobby Keys, who Leon knew from the Tulsa days, Bobby had come through Tulsa out of Texas and would stay in Tulsa for a while. So it was this network of Leon's musicians, also guys that knew Delaney. It's all these people that had come up through these clubs. And uh, they formed this really, I think, one of the great underrated, certainly one of the great underrated American bands. I mean, never mind their outsized influence on guys like Clapton and George Harrison, but Elton John, Joe Cocker, all those people, especially overseas there, over in England, they it, there was almost an evangelical um, secret handshakes. That yeah. record became kind of a secret handshake, but like people were also trying to be evangelical about, you know, Mick Jagger. I talk, I, I talk about the Stones, talking about Delaney and Bonnie. It really made an impact on on bands over there. Similar, like to the band, how the band after after psychedelia inspired people to go back to sort of rootsier stuff. So that's and, and Leon was key key in there. Leon was basically one of the Delaney and Bonnie and friends, but he didn't really tour with them because he was too busy back in LA. After that that period, he kind of reaches his high watermark commercially in that kind of late late sixties, early seventies period. I mean, for for listeners that maybe more UK based that might not know, how successful was he? So out of out of Delaney and Bonnie, you really came the Mad Dogs and Englishmen because uh, at that point, Denny Cordell came over with Joe Cocker. Denny was already a millionaire, having produced uh, Procol Harum and Moody Blues, and the first uh, Joe Cocker record did very well there. But he was just breaking in America. It was soon after Woods, his Woodstock appearance, and he was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, and he needed another tour. He had just let go of his band, the Grease Band, um, and he needed a tour very quickly because he was being threatened with um, not being able to come back to the country and play again, union, yada, yada, and also apparently physical harm from uh, sort of some mobbed up connections in, in New York. So Leon whipped together this band. It was it was the core of which was Delaney and Bonnie's band because they had just come off the road, uh, but also these other session musicians and singers that Leon had, and, and it became this gigantic you know, rock and roll circus. And that was the Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour. And that film came out and the album came out and Leon's name was one of sort of the star of, of the film, you know, he was like the band leader. And, and you know, there was some controversy about that. Joe, Joe felt like he was, you know, exploiting him kind of thing when in fact he was saving his ass. I mean, Joe had a bit of a, uh, a mixed mind about that. But from that, George Harrison turns to Leon. Now Leon's record is out, his first record, Song for You, Delta Lady. He's got two Beatles, two Stones, Stevie Winwood, Eric Clapton, all contributing to Leon's record because they all knew how magical this guy was. Engineered by Glenn Johns and produced by Denny Cordell. Now Denny and Leon formed this label, Shelter Records, which became home to J.J. Kale and Tom Petty. Leon's career was almost getting, you know, right out of the bat. He was becoming quite big uh, off of that tour. And right around that same time, soon after, George turns to his friend Leon and says, I need help whipping together this band. 
for the concert for Bangladesh. And this was done over basically a month or two of that summer. So Leon kind of puts together an amazing band and they've got Billy Preston and, and, and George brings in Clapton and Klaus Vorman and, and his crew. But it was, uh, it was a lot of it was the, the sort of same guys from, from Leon's session days. Billy Preston was also a part of that sort of wrecking crew scene as well. So yeah, and when that came out, Leon, in many people's minds, for better or for worse, kind of stole the show. You know, yeah. you know, you've got George and, and Ringo who hadn't played in front of people since what, 1966? Never mind a, a Madison Square Garden type crowd like that. It had been. You could see. You could see how nervous uh, they are. You could see. You could see Ringo flubbing the words to uh, Don't Come Easy as he's looking at the lyrics on the snare drum, you know. But there's Leon. He comes out unabashedly. Who is this guy, right? And he starts doing a stone song, <laughs> you know, with two Beatles. He does Jumpin' Jack Flash into a young blood. It's like a 10, 15 minute Thurman Drang kind of drama. And uh, he really becomes a big rock star off of that. You mentioned the that concert and, and George. We'll talk a little bit more around that. So did you get a sense when you write the book of the kind of the key to the friendship between Leon and George? What what do you think attracted them to each other? Right. So Leon first goes over to England with Denny Cordell in 70 and starts working on his record. Right. So the, that record that I was talking about with all those people and. And Chris O'Dell tells tells the story in my book, but also in her book. I mean, I, I interviewed her as well. I'm sure she's well known to your listeners at Apple Records. And she kind of serves as, through her whole life, as a connector of, of other musicians to, to other musicians and tours and running these things. She was sort of the brains behind a lot of outfits. But here she was just this young American woman who didn't really want to see any other Americans. She was in the, she was just having a great time being the only American special person at, at Apple, really. She tells George um, that Leon Russell's in town. He's, oh, I want to get Leon Russell on this Jackie Lomax record, right? And because Nicky Hopkins wasn't available or something. And anyway, one thing led to another, and this is well told in, in Chris's book. George had seen Leon and probably got to meet him in 68 when, when George was over there in the summer. And he, he saw Delaney and Bonnie a number of times through Alan Pariser who was one of these great connectors as well, who was a producer of the Monterey Pop Festival. So, yeah, they became, I think they just hit it off right away, just as musicians. I mean, George was one of those musician, musicians, guys, like really appreciated players and 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 people's particular contributions. I think he recognized Leon's particular genius for bringing this American R&B thing, just like they did with Billy and how Billy sort of, really brought a new energy to the let it be sessions right the same kind of thing with uh, they they look to these americans or whoever else you look to outside once you're in a band for a certain amount of years you start to look for outside influences if nothing else to just sort of get out of your own sort of little cocoon uh so yeah i think that was mainly it and uh, they became friends and they they stayed friends kind of um it's interesting i mean they stayed friends through through the mid to late 70s and then they started to lose touch but that was probably more leon than anything else because leon started burning bridges and cutting cutting off people mm. we'll come back to that the the concert itself then was obviously a huge deal and as you say it was kind of made leon into the next level of fame i suppose you say how did he respond to that yeah um I think he found himself, here's here's kind of a key to Leon. He found himself swept along by things. I think he had prepared for things his whole life. Like 
but he was also very very insecure and he he became starting with the mad dogs and englishman thing he started to put on a certain persona that was not necessarily who he was he had this kind of subtle charisma uh, he was not fully aware of his whole life but people would see him in these certain eyes and and, and you combine that with his talent and his his soft-spoken nature and he would just draw people in in this magnetic way then he started to become aware of that as he as he saw what he what, as he saw himself in these projected roles you know i mean he was always confident as a musician and a band leader he was going to be the guy to take charge at, by the late 60s he was already doing that because he saw guys that had very little absolute you know musicianship talent like phil Spector, not even really in engineering just sort of like whipping it together faking it as they make it right i think leon put on this superhuman kind of thing starting with the outfits and the look and everything and this persona became who he wasn't really as a person it was just very much a rock star show and and it really was a show his his live show was it's not about jams. It wasn't about, hey, where's this going to go tonight? It was like a really meticulously arranged, like old school R&B type show. Uh, so, again, the book will make this clear in more much more detail. But most of us will know that success does start to kind of slip away from Leon as we go through the, the 70s. Can you give us a general picture as to what happens and, and why he can't sustain that success from that early 70s period? Yeah, well, you see, you see that persona. If nothing else, if people are familiar with the concert for Bangladesh footage, you see this persona that he's put on, right? And it's sort of the it's it's reaching its its apex as a as a kind of thing that he was going to um, to be to, to who he had become. But it wasn't who, like I said, it wasn't who he was going to forever be. He wasn't going to be able to sustain that yet. It was very successful, this sort of rock star, evangelical sort of preacher dude, you know, this agnostic gospel type guy uh, being down there. Willie Nelson talks about this in my book about he was very aware of Leon was of his of his power and his uh, how charisma like that could be could be used in a malevolent way. And he would stop his sermons, quote unquote, uh, and and say, look, notice where you people are right now. I, I could do almost anything with you. You know, don't let some charlatan come and take you somewhere else. But that was very successful, that act in the South in particular. And the South wanted this sort of hard. It was almost the, the prototype of Southern rock, what Southern rock became in the mid to late 70s. Hard, you know, piano and a guy up there, sort of redneck, you know, looking hippie kind of guy, a mixture of those both. You know, that's that's what Leonard Skinner and those guys sort of became. And he was sort of the prototype of that. But the South was known for, you know, some 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 not so great things. And I mean, he always had an integrated band. I mean, he always had African-American and black people in this band and actual Africans. He had Ambrose Campbell, who had made a big splash in Soho in the early 60s, uh, you know, playing Afrobeat. He'd come from Nigeria to London. You know, so he was in Leon's band as a 50-year-old guy back in the early 70s. There was something about like when he started bringing up the Gap Band, like Leon discovered the Gap Band out of Tulsa uh, with some other people. And he had the Gap Band as his actual band. And then he then he married Mary McCreary, who had started out in the Sly Stone scene and the church scene, a black woman. They married. They started doing duets together. Now, at that point, the music changed drastically as well. But there they are. He's playing sort of he's not playing those big sort of gospel rock songs as he used to. He's playing some more light pop stuff. And they were met with actual racist threats. I mean, people were throwing nooses on the stage. Uh, I talked to Maxanne Lewis, 
another black singer in his band. I mean, these people were were faced with some of the most disgusting, nauseating type of racism. I mean, just bold, in-their-face racism. Mm. And, you know, Leon was always forward-thinking. He would just sort of, he would just ignore that stuff. He would just follow his muse, his muse as well. But one thing led to another. Eventually, they get divorced. He had already broken his, his partnership with Danny Cordell. That was probably the first big mistake. He started to not know who to trust. You know, this can go on for hours, this conversation, but there was a bunch of things coming together, and he felt like he knew his own way, and he started listening to the wrong people. And by the end of the 70s, it was really all falling apart for him, and he he never really had another hit record after the late 70s until Elton comes back and they have the reunion thing in 2010. So he was stuck playing smaller and smaller clubs uh, as the 80s progressed into the 90s. You were just talking about George Harrison again. And through that period, there's a bit in the book, isn't there, where the last interview, that last TV interview that George ever does with Ravi Shankar, doesn't he mention Leon then? So, was there still yeah. a connection through that period with George? No, um, Leon and, and, and George, the last I know of them really being connected is uh, working on Extra Texture, I think, right? So somewhere in the in 74 to 75. I think they, they remained in touch. Like, for example, uh, Tom Petty talks about Leon scooping him up and meeting. I mean, Ringo and, and George would come over to these parties at Leon's house in Burbank. So that was like probably up at about 77, 78. Then they started to really lose touch. I don't know where. I think it had to do with Leon's divorce. It was a really hor- horrific divorce. And I, you know, I talked to Jackie Wessel, who was Leon's uh, stalwart bass player from about 81 all the way until the end. And I'm like, you know, Leon really would have been perfect for the freaking traveling Wilburys, you know, like, yeah, I, I mean, all, all credit to Jeff Lynn and all that. But I mean, I would have if it was one or the other, I would rather see sort of Leon in there doing sort of Leon piano work and whatever. But, you know, Leon was close with Dylan. He was close with George. He was close with Patty. He was close with Keltner. I mean, he kind of gave Keltner his start. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jackie said, you know, he J- Jackie referred to that VH1 interview, the, the last televised interview. And he's like, George is like, yeah, I don't know where Leon, I tried to reach him in Memphis. Leon never lived in Memphis. It was kind of weird. I think he confused Memphis with outside of Nashville, maybe, you know, which can be forgiven. I, I think he just tried to look him up. And uh, but Leon was embarrassed at where he had sort of gotten and he didn't want to look like he was. He referred to himself as Willie Nelson's favorite charity because Will, Willie would keep having him at picnic at his big picnics and and bring him out on tour. But he, I think, he was too embarrassed to go to, out to. I mean, he had fallen out with Clapton because Clapton was was kind of a mess substance wise. But I think with George, I don't know particularly if there was anything other than just pure embarrassment and, and not wanting to be a charity act. Fascinating, interesting. In 2010, as you were slightly alluding to earlier, I was working in a, a good old-fashioned record shop, and I remember we opened up one Monday morning, and there was a guy probably in his, I don't know, 50s, and he walked straight in, and he and right on the front we had the Leon Russell and Elton John Union album, and he was the first guy, in, and he, he bought a vinyl and a CD copy of this record. And I was obviously I, I was aware of Elton and slightly aware of Leon at that point, and uh, he was telling me this guy who he was, how much he loved Leon Russell when he came out to buy it on the very first day of release. And it's interesting because Elton John is sort of a theme throughout the book that culminates with this Union record in, in 2010. Tell us a little bit about 
the kind of history of Elton and and Leon. El- Elton was almost obsessed with Leon initially, wasn't he? He was such a huge fan. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Elton's uh, memoir is fantastic, and uh, he, he talks a bit about this. I mean, he, he had been doing, obviously, similar things to Leon. He had been a session guy. He had been out on the road supporting other artists, especially American R&B artists. So he had gotten schooled, Elton did, with a bit of, he, he was obsessed with American music. He said, as we all were in that in in, in London in, in that scene in, in the '60s. Then he hears he didn't he didn't know about Leon. I mean, nobody really did Leon's behind the scenes thing as a, as a, as a session man himself. But he, he hears the Delaney and Bonnie record. He goes, "My God, who who is that?" And we're talking about except no substitute. He's like, "Who is playing piano?" And it wasn't just even just the record. It was it was the whole record, but it was specifically Leon's piano on this song called "The Ghetto," which is. If you listen to it, you think, oh, man, this is sort of like Aretha Franklin's Never Loved a Man or something, which just had come out like the, the previous year. And I think Leon, and Leon himself said, I've never really played like that. I mean, I think there's this myth. There is this myth uh, of that Leon came up in this Southern Baptist ch- church thing. But Leon's people were starch Methodists. You know, he they, he would start to play like like that in his church and they would be like, no, he got aware he got aware of this from listening to the radio and from other players. And I think particularly uh, Ray Charles, Prime, and other gospel type players like Aretha. And uh, so Elton hears this. Now, Peter Nichols, who was road manager for uh, for Joe Cocker and the Grease Band from the earlier days, all the way through uh, the early 70s, for uh, hooked up with Leon on the Mad Dogs thing and became one of Leon's guests. He's like, you know, um, you know, we, we were, he said, Joe Cocker, we were ready to fly to America. We get down to London. We're going to stay. We're going to have an early morning flight. We're going to stay in London. So somebody says, hey, go buy some records. We go down to this place. I think it's Musicland, maybe. Uh, and there he goes, there's Reg Dwight uh, working behind the counter. Now, I said this to Elton. He goes, nah, nonsense. I was not working there. But even him, even Elton himself says he would sometimes, clerk, you know, help out at this record store. It's just if somebody went out for lunch, he would, he would man the cash register. But in Peter's memory that it was Elton who thrust this record upon uh, Joe Cocker and those guys. And, and, and Elton says, well, actually Eric Clapton and George were already evangelical about this record. So he kind of def- defers the credit a bit. Anyway, be that as it may, he, yes, he was obsessed with, he said, Leon is everything I wanted to be in a piano player. It's, it's almost like Leon got there first. And if you listen to like, you know, Tumbleweed Connection, if you listen to Honky Chateau. It's 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 not just Leon's piano work. You can kind of hear the influence of Carl Radel on on D or or, or or Nigel playing sort of behind the beat like these sort of uh, Tulsa drummers. So yeah, it's quite evident. And and so Elton makes his big famous uh, debut uh, overhyped in his own estimation at at the Troubadour. And who does he see in the first or second row in behind the mirrored shades? But this intimidating figure of Leon Russell. He almost freezes. And he's like, he couldn't have been sweeter to me. He couldn't have been nicer. He took me under his wing. He let me open tours for him. Leon would would half joke and said, as soon as I saw this guy perform, it was like, Elton, I I thought my career was over because here's a guy that could do everything I could do, but also had this great showmanship. So I think that lit a fire under uh, under Leon's ass. And uh, they were together quite a bit in the early 70s. So how does that relationship get to the union in, in in 2010 what what was the inspiration and the story of that record 
Well, I mean, Elton went on to his own thing, you know, and uh, skyrocketed as the rocket man and, and didn't get into drugs until about Caribou. But, um, but he, his career was just at a whole different stratosphere while Leon was going the other direction. And they didn't see each other again. They didn't talk at all uh, until about 2008 when there's all kinds of lobbying efforts uh, in Tulsa uh, amongst their super fans and musicians uh, named Charlene and Steve Ripley, who really wanted to get first a documentary made about Leon, because his career was really sort of at the low point by that time. And um, so at some point, somebody says, well, why don't we try to get to Elton John? You know, he he was uh, he talked about being a huge Leon fan in these early Rolling Stone magazines and through some successful attempts they get they get somehow get in touch with him it's a fascinating story in fact it's too long for the podcast i think but they have this friend that just happens to have this be invited as a guest to this um this charity dinner uh, they bid on for 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 Elton's um charity age charity and one thing leads to another Elton calls Leon out of the blue he hadn't seen him. He said, I hadn't seen him. You know, they, they talk about this in the Cameron Crowe making of this, uh, the union record as well. He calls him out of the blue. Leon's on the tour bus and he said, he's like watching LA Law or something. He said, later said, I was watching my soap operas. Two or three calls get put together. And so, you know, Lee, El, Elton had been on a safari with his husband, David, and, the, and David had gotten wind of all this Leon stuff and put together an iPod playlist for Elton. And Elton said he's sitting there shaving and he's got the, the iPod on and he's listening to Back to the Island, uh, this, this Leon song, and he just starts to involuntarily weep. It's just and all the memories and he felt so indebted and how, what happened to this guy and how could I, and you know, Elton said he he had kept an eye on it. Like he'd see, he'd be in LA and he'd see that that Leon was playing at some club up the, up on the Pacific Coast Highway. He's like, I couldn't go. He was Elton. He couldn't just show up and he didn't want to see Leon at a low ebb. And, but he felt, he feels this great debt to Leon and he wanted to help pay. And he also wanted to make a great record himself. He had made some some lesser records that weren't doing very well. And he wanted to get back to his roots, as did Bernie. Bernie Taupin wanted to get back to their, their mutual roots as well. And this was a way to do it. So just to kind of conclude, the last part of the book, Leon does this sort of victory lap off the back of the union, where the union's a big hit. Uh, as a record in the UK and in the US, he gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, tours, collaborations, etc. The the last part of his life is generally kind of seen as a lot more successful than the 80s and 90s. How did he react to, to this kind of newfound well, success? One of the things that I knew very well about uh, about Leon going into this was having seen that um, that tearful uh, induction acceptance speech at the at the Hall of Fame where he says. He's crying, and he wasn't uh, he wasn't known to be a guy to cry. He says in that speech that I want to thank Elton John. He found me in a ditch on the side of the highway of life, and I want to thank him. He took me to the great the greatest stages. It was this beautiful moment. And then, but what does he do? Uh, Elton Elton was ready to not only just uh, steward him through uh, this record. He wanted to bring Leon the the rest of his career to to that same height. Um, he had got obviously opened up for Elton on the tour. They did some songs together. All of a sudden, Leon's playing back in these big arenas. And Elton rightfully thought, well, this is where he belongs. But but Leon wasn't comfortable there. <laughs> but Leon also wasn't comfortable with anybody else telling him that or having expectations of him. He had certain things he wanted to do. In fact, the next record, Elton thought, well, we're, you know, he's going to be executive producer. And, and his manager, Johnny Barbas, 
was going to be managing Leon's career as well. But uh, so they figured they would do like another record, not with if not with T Bone Burnett, which the union was somebody like that, like Don was, uh, and I think it was specifically Don was. And uh, but instead, Leon wanted to do a record with his old friend Tommy Lapuma. Uh, a great producer, great record man, but but it was Leon's idea to do more of a standards type record. And I, as I was talking to Elton, Elton said, "Yeah, no, he wanted to do a record with like Georgia on my mind." And I said, "No, no." <laughs> he did. He did Georgia on my mind. And so, uh, you know, using that metaphor uh, in the book, uh, I say, "Well, he, the, he took the wheel back and jerked, and jerked himself right back into the ditch in the highway side of, <laughs> high side of, of life." Yeah. It's a wonderful book, Bill. It's a, it's a really interesting story and another example of this of another Beatle-related person that has this, this kind of crazy life. So, uh, Leon Russell, the master of space and time, has journeyed through rock and roll history. Bill, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joe.